This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Steroid CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Steroid to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 92 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Shai Eisenman, the founder and CEO of Bubble. Bubble is the first skincare brand created for young skin that is science-driven, non-toxic, and plant-based. Available in nearly 4,000 Walmart stores nationwide, the Bubble line consists of seven products that work together to create a complete routine from face cleansers to face masks. In this episode, Shai shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Israel and graduating college at just 18 years old, to selling bulletproof plates to government agencies with her dad, to working in performance marketing at an ad tech company, to building an online gaming business for a billionaire in the UK, to meeting a former CEO of a major beauty brand that inspired her to create Bubble. She talks with us about the challenges she faced in selling bulletproof plates as a young teenage girl, why doing research is key, and how she created a community of thousands of teenagers that helped her learn what her customers wanted and catapulted the business towards success with inbound requests from major retailers after just two weeks of launching. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning and leave us an awesome review. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Shai. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story and building Bubble. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'm really very excited to be here. Awesome. And so let's start from the beginning. I'd love to learn where you're from, what childhood was like growing up. Tell us. So I was born and raised in Israel and I um, had a weird childhood. Um, I actually started my BA when I was 15 and I started working full-time when I was 16. So I had a BA that's like college. No. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you start, how did you start college at 15? So I was like a part of like a a gifted kids program that basically gave us the opportunity to accelerate things, which I loved. 
I was always what people like to call an adult kid, like in a kid that, that acts like an adult. So I had the opportunity to start my BA when I was 15. I jumped on the opportunity, managed to find, like I found myself when I was 18, kind of post my BA, post everything, finished all my finals and everything. So you and- finished college at 18 when most people are starting college. Yes. yes. That's crazy. So tell me about this adult kid thing. What does that mean? And why were you this like so adult so young? I think I was very, I was always like much more mature for my age, always felt like I don't really fit with kids my own age. I didn't really understand them, what they're talking about. I was actually a competitive chess player as a kid. Like what's that? Like was it with a Queen's Gamut or something that show on Netflix? That was you, wasn't it? <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> No, I was, I was like your childhood story, you know, (laughs) based on the life of shy. It's kind of weird to say this, but like for a very long period of time, like chess was my life. That's what I did all day. And actually like I'm, I'm teaching my five-year-old now chess and that's an exciting. Were you like that person that did multiple chess? You know how she goes around the room and she's playing like (laughs) 10 games at once. It's ridiculous. Is that you? Did you do that? do that. And I also used, to, also used to play blind chess, which is the most annoying thing in the world because you don't actually have a board. You need to like say, what are you like? How oh God, it's all audio. It. Yeah, exactly. It's like so. audio chess. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a whole nother level. I mean, even <laughs> just playing with multiple people at one time would just like, that's crazy. Yeah. And I like, that's the part I loved playing chess. I didn't like to do it blindly without actually seeing the board. That was a nightmare, but I, I, I just, I love chess. And I was like, I loved the whole, I was very focused on like things that adults like liked and didn't really like all the things that kids liked. Were you like golfing too? Were you golfing or like, what other like playing poker? You know, I'm like wondering what else you did as a, an adult <laughs> kid. I think chess was like, took probably about 80% of my life. So I didn't have a lot of time to become competitive in poker or anything. (laughs) (laughs) You had one good thing and you're like, that's what I'm going to focus my energy and not be like half-ass at other things. Yeah, exactly. Um, So was really like, really loved. And like my parents basically gave me the ability to do whatever I wanted. Like the whole concept was like, just do whatever you want. We don't care. <laughs> Not in a bad way, but they trusted me, which was kind of weird. So I was able to make my own decisions of like, okay, I'm going to start my BA. Okay. I'm going to leave school and I'm going to do it on my own. And like, okay, I'm going to finish my BA. It's like, everything was very, was, was decided and driven by whatever I wanted to do when nobody could really say anything. Did you have siblings? Yeah. I have one, one uh, brother who is one year older than me. And what is he? Is he, did he finish college too really early or are you like showing him up? No, he was like the complete, complete opposite. He was like, loved hanging out with my, with his friends, couldn't care less about anything besides friends. He was like, couldn't care less about school. Also very good at chess, but didn't want to pursue this. So very, very different. And also it's, it's, it was just a very weird childhood. When I was 15, I, I, I started my BA and I just got into like, being basically an adult. And when I was 16, I, uh, my dad gave me the opportunity to run his business. My dad is an amazing inventor and an amazing, amazing, amazing human being like super smart, but has no idea about anything related to business and business development and sales and administration or anything. So it was like, okay, I think my 16 year old daughter could do it, which was obviously a total fiasco. (laughs) Well, so what was he inventing and what business did you start, you know, running with him? Okay. That's, that's getting weirder. So he was actually 
creating and selling and manufacturing bulletproof plates. Plates? Why do they yes. have to be bulletproof? So it's like a bulletproof plates that you actually put in the vest. So not only that I was like doing business when I was 16, like traveling around the world, like doing exhibitions and conferences, we, I actually like sold to B2G. So to army and like police. Oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's like a very masculine industry. Very masculine. So think of the experience when you see a 16 and 17 year old kid standing in like in an exhibition and like basically selling these products. It was a great experience. Don't think I want that for my daughter, but uh, I've learned a ton from this because I, I literally managed his, his entire business. So from dealing with sending samples to actually like uh, negotiating a contract and looking into the numbers and the PL and everything. And I was doing it for two years while I was doing my BA. So it was pretty crazy experience. But again, I learned a ton and actually the best thing in the world came out of it because in one of these conferences, when I was 18 and three weeks in India, I actually met my life partner who I've been with until this day. Oh, wow. Uh, who is guess what? 16 years older than me. Wow. <laughs> and, and we've been together for more than 12 years. So, and we have a daughter together and everything. So it actually like really came out for the best uh, because I met him there. And it was also a great, great learning experience. Made every possible mistake. Like what? Like, tell us about one. I just had no idea what to do. And I was like sitting with like very senior people from the Indian army, for example, trying to sell them bulletproof plates when I know nothing about business, when I know nothing about the world. And it was just like, you know, and, and, and my dad was again, like very bad at this. So he was like, didn't know how to handle in certain situations. And it was, it was a very, very interesting experience. Yeah, I bet. I mean, was it challenging to be taken seriously and with your age, your gender in this crazy type of industry? Just nobody took me seriously. It <laughs> yeah. wasn't a challenge. It was just the reality. <laughs> right. I mean, how did you overcome that? What did you do? I was just like, you know, just trying to talk and showing that I actually know what I'm talking about, explaining like I, I had very in-depth knowledge of the industry and like, what does this bulletproof plate can do and what is it made of? And like, when you actually like put it into a test, what are the results? So when people started talking to me, they started taking me seriously, but it was, it was for, for a certain period of time in the Israeli security industry and like defense industry, it was kind of a joke of that little kid that is coming to conferences and trying to sell her, bull her dad's bulletproof plates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> but that's an excellent kind of internship almost, right? That you had while you were studying in school. And so what did you end up studying and what did you want to be, you know, when you were a kid or adult kid, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I was very passionate about learning international relations. I don't even know why. I was just like, I love this because I loved reading books as a kid. And like, I was just fascinated by this. I really, really loved just international relations and everything related to that. So I, I had my BA in international relations and political science, which was amazing because I did my BA without even feeling like I was doing it because I was just enjoying it so much. I always knew I wanted to be in business. I didn't really know in what. I think 
tech was always like a great, like something I was like thinking that I want to do, but I didn't really understand what it means. Always knew that I'm like, I'm not excited by any way of writing code. So I'm not going to actually be a developer, but I definitely knew I wanted to be on the business side of things. When I was running my dad's business, I was like learning so much about sales and business development. And then I joined the IDF for one year, which I was also dealing with international relations with the U.S. Army because every Israeli needs to serve in the IDF. So that was an interesting experience as well. And then I got into, um, a couple months later, I got into performance marketing in an ad tech company in Israel. And that was a really, really amazing opportunity to understand what tech is and like, what does it mean? And what is performance marketing? And it was the days of pre-Facebook advertising. So like very, very old days of marketing, (laughs) but I've learned a ton in the process had like a really great role, like actually being to experiment and learn and do so much that I just completely fell in love with performance marketing and testing and looking at numbers and conversion rates and just like truly analyzing things. So that was like my first deep dive into, into tech and into marketing, into this world. Interesting. So what were some of the key takeaways you think from that job or from the job with your dad that you've kind of taken with you into entrepreneurship and running your own business? I think like, first of all, with my dad, it was a great, you know, learning curve. I I did that for two and a half years and I've learned so much about business. Like, how do you even do business? Like the business is about relationships, you know, like, I think it's something that you don't really understand beforehand. And like, what is, how do you sell products? How do you explain to people about products? What is a great presentation? What is a terrible presentation? What, how do people respond? Like even just evaluating people's responses was something that I really loved and enjoyed of doing because I've learned so much in terms of truly just seeing how people reacted to certain things we showed them. And like, and also like even dealing with different cultures. Like I've, I, I grew up in Israel, was fully Israeli, but then when I was working in my dad's, I worked so much with India and with Europe, with France and with Italy. And then when I, in performance marketing, I worked a lot more in the, with the US. And I just learned so much from these different things of like how to handle different cultures, how to, how to explain myself because as an Israeli, you usually are very abrupt and very aggressive and very direct, which is not necessarily something that is widely accepted in other, other demos. So it was, it was just something that helped me learn so much. And my background in performance marketing helps me so much until this day when it comes to even thinking about bubble and like, how do you, how, like even looking at how the performance marketing world has shifted in the last 10 years, looking at our numbers, analyzing it. I'm really, really good at Excel. And that was like spreadsheets. And that is like something that I use until this day. (laughs) Right. So you're saying you have some probably pretty great, you know, performance marketing metrics behind um, bubble. Actually, no. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, No, it's funny to say this because Bubble is a very different brand, right? Like, first of all, we have much lower average order value because our price points are significantly lower than any other skincare brand in the industry. Like if usually the average price point is going to be $30, $40, our products are 15 at best, 16 maybe. So because of that, it's very hard for us to be much more competitive when it comes to performance marketing just because of the fact that our AOV is lower than anyone else paying for the same CPA. But we, we've kind of found our way through this and how to really build, build the brand to where we want to be 
when anyway, I think performance marketing post iOS 14.5 world is, is challenging anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And so after this performance marketing gig, where'd you go from there? So then I was introduced at a dinner to one of Europe's um, biggest tech billionaires who was crazy enough to offer me a job to run some of his companies. Why? Until this day, I have no idea. But I found myself starting from scratch and building a really big operation in London when I was 21. Um, And I was running it for about four and a half years. Um, And it was a gaming operation. I fully relocated to London. Um, I was doing it for, I was running a company of a hundred people and they were doing everything. Like we were doing from TV advertising to performance marketing, affiliate marketing, any possible community management, VAP management, retention in a super, super sophisticated way, which I think is like, I, I always like to say that in four years, I've learned what I would probably learn in 30 years in another place because I got to try and see and do so many different things that I've just learned a ton, um, made every possible mistake. But it was such an amazing experience because it was such an acceleration process of truly building a company from scratch and scaling it to, pre- to a pretty exciting place. What kind of business is this? Gaming business. So bingo, bingo gaming, actually. Bingo? Yes. Like online bingo? Yes. All right. Very different. <laughs> Very. I mean, chess maybe makes sense, you know, like if you got to do an <laughs> online chess business, that would be fun, right? But why? Yeah. So what made you? Well, obviously the crazy learning curve, but why? You said you don't know, but I'm curious. Do you have any idea? Why would this guy hire you to run a hundred person team, right? Did you run or manage people before this? Were you like afraid that you had to have all these people reporting to you and not very much experience? So when I, in, in the ad tech company, I got promoted pretty quickly. So I managed a team of eight. And then when I got introduced to him, I did a lot of like competitive analysis on companies that he ran. And within that competitive analysis, we talked and I showed him how much I know about the industry. And then he was like, listen, I want you to come and work with me. And I was like, why? So you kind of came with him with a plan almost. You're like, here's all the companies. Not that really. You- Not okay. really. It's like a friendly <laughs> dinner that I was just like talking about a lot of mistakes that they're doing as a company. Uh, like one of the companies that he was running. And then he was like, listen, I really want you to come on board. And, and he became my mentor. He's like very, very successful businessman, um, has over 50 different companies, net worth of over seven and a half billion dollars. So I found myself like learning so much from him and really spending a lot of time learning. When I created that company in London, it was just me in the beginning and we scaled it to a hundred employees. So I also hired a hundred people within four years, which was also really an amazing experience of like how to scale business and how to start it from scratch and how to get all the best people to come and join. And it was just really, really, really phenomenal learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's insane experience. So you scaled it to a hundred. It wasn't like a hundred already and you came in. That's what I misunderstood. Interesting. So yeah, that's incredible that you had to scale that business to that amount of people. What did you learn about hiring and building a business at that time? Wow. Um, So first of all, it's not only hiring, it's also hiring in a completely different country, right? Like until then, all I knew was Israel. Like it's a very, very different market. Again, I've learned obviously a little bit of India and like a little bit, but I hired people only in Israel then. And I found myself in a completely different country, not knowing the culture. The culture difference between UK and Israel is like cannot be 
more apart. Like it's completely, completely different. So Israelis are very direct and very, like they say things as it is just because this is our culture. Like there's no fluff, not, not in a good or bad way. Like we're, this is why we're not polite. And this is why we sound aggressive because we just say things very directly as a part of our culture. In the UK, people are significantly more polite and they have their own terminology of how to say things. So like, for example, when somebody says to you, oh, I, th- I find this as a very interesting idea, you would, as a UK person, you would understand, like as somebody from the UK, you would immediately understand, okay, they hate my idea. It's terrible. But as an Israeli, I understood this as like, oh, it's a very interesting idea. <laughs> That's funny. Well, what about America? Because we're real fluffy here, right? So <laughs> I think I think America is much more mellow than the UK from that perspective. It's not to that extent. It got to the level that it was so challenging for me to understand what our team is saying to me that one of the team members just printed out a dictionary that says like what the UK what the UK person means, what do they actually say in order to to like, what do they say? What does it actually means and what the other side understands? So I will have some kind of an understanding of how they talk. And after like this massive fight, he printed it and put it on my laptop to be like, okay, this is what we actually mean. Can you please understand this already? Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. And you're like, can you just use the right words, please? Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a great learning experience. And it was an amazing, like, I've built this amazing team and really great people that were so good at what they did. And I, I really found myself like getting the organization to a level that I was super happy with it. And we were building it to a really amazing scale. So it was a beautiful experience. And I've learned also a ton on the process and also managed to, I made so many mistakes that I've learned and kind of applied this on Bubble to not repeat the same mistakes. What, what can we as listeners not do and, or learn from those mistakes that you made? Um, look at the other person and what they actually, like, how do they perceive or see certain things you say? And it's something that us as a team talk about a lot that like sometimes I say certain things and the team will understand something when I actually mean something completely different. So sometimes the best thing is actually to pick up the phone and talk. Obviously in London, it was, we just, talked in person. Like we just had a conversation in a remote working environment. It's significantly more challenging. So what we started doing is a lot like just picking up the phone and talking. Another thing is like scale slowly, like don't scale too quickly because sometimes when you scale too quickly, you can, you know, you can see results. You you can see different results that don't necessarily truly shows. It's just because you scale too fast, you know, like you didn't really had the right tools to scale. And sometimes it needs to happen gradually rather than quickly. And just hiring, like hiring, understanding how team members, like even not taking too personally certain things that happen with certain team members, because I've, I've spent so much time like hiring and training and working with the team that I've learned a ton through that process. What do you mean by not taking it personally? So like, I think us as an entrepreneurs, we tend to overthink a lot of things. We overthink when investors say no. We overthink when an employee is leaving us or when they refuse a job offer. We overthink even something a potential customer said to us. I think mainly female entrepreneurs, I hate to say this, but it's like we tend to obsess over things 
and like take it very personally when the truth is there's nothing personal about it. Sometimes it's just a situation. And to be completely honest, like even if it's personal, like who cares? Like the, the goal is to move on because everything that happens is, is if, if it was for the best, great. And if it wasn't, you learn. So it's also for the best. So just constantly remember that it's a learning curve and it's okay. And not overthink it. Like I remember when I was in the UK, I found myself going on a vacation. It was right before Christmas and I was going on a vacation for a week. And one of my most senior team members told, told me that they're resigning. And it was like 2014 I or 2013. And I was devastated because I was waiting for that person to join for about three months. And then he stayed in the company for two months and then resigned. And for an entire week of vacation, I obsessed over it like obsessed. That's all I thought about. And when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like, okay, that's what happened. And it's totally fine. And it's okay. Move on. And that's something that took me many, many years to understand that nothing is a big deal and nothing should be, you know, outside of, you know, health and family. Like I think all the business stuff are things that you should learn from and not over obsess over or let it get to you because it's not worth it. It's truly not worth it. Yeah, that's so true. So how did you, you know, realizing during that first week of vacation and kind of obsessing and feeling probably pretty hurt and annoyed that this person did this, like that's super annoying. So how did you kind of go from that to, okay, I obsessed over it this time, but that a second time that something like that happened, how did you deal with it then? Like, what was the incremental changes? Right. Cause I don't believe that there's like a hard stop of like, Oh, I'm just, I'm healed now. I know what not to do. So round two, I'm, I'm good. Right. You can say that over and over, but I'm sure there was a, it took time to kind of adjust. So can you tell me about that kind of evolution and maybe how long it even took to kind of have a better response? That's a little bit more healthy or helps you move faster. I think the more, like I got a lot of no's, I got a lot of no's from potential team member, I still get a lot of no's, you know, like that's a part of the process. Like I took it so personally. And from that point on, I was like, I'm not going to let this ever get to me ever again. It's just not worth it. And then from that on, it's just became easy and easier with every time something like that happened. And it, it's just made life so much easier once I, I, I had the courage and the ability to just let things go and not over, like not let it affect my vacation or my, or, you know, even my sleep, like it used to really, really get to me. And now it's, you know, it's all part of a process. It's, it's, it's something that it took years, of course, it's not something that just happens immediately, but every time that it happened, it's just made it easier and easier and easier. And the more I was conscious and aware over the fact that I'm letting it get to me, the easier it became to like, let it go and understand. And also like, I think the more you experience, the more you realize that a lot of things that seems huge and massive to you are not really that massive in the grand scheme of things. And maybe they're like a tiny little part of the story. So, so the more I, I truly experienced this and thought to myself, okay, three months later, I'm not even thinking about this. I realized, okay, it's, 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 it's not even worth obsessing it over now if in three months, it's not going to affect me. 
Yeah. And I think also probably depending on the size of the business, right? Like if you're a really small startup and that's like you said, your only senior person, or in my experience, like one of the most important people on the team and they leave you hanging out to dry, it really hurts. It hurts a lot more than if your team is a lot bigger and can sustain that kind of hit or that blow, right? Because the amount of time it takes to try to find someone to fill that spot or just hurts a lot more. I think smaller businesses when you are strapped for resources or, you know, it's much smaller smaller team. So it's like a different situation. Would you agree? Yes and no. I think it's also a part of like the entrepreneurial journey to understand that even if, cause, cause like when I experienced it there and then it happened in bubble as an early stage company in like the first few months, I was still okay with it, you know, because the, the more it's, I think it was a mental process that I went through with, with myself to really understand that if something doesn't have a serious impact, if I'm not going to think about it in three months from now, it's probably doesn't matter that much. And it's not worth me obsessing or taking it personally. And I should just move on again. It, it, it took a lot of heartaches to get there, but like now it's just, again, it's okay. So this person's leaving totally fine. Move on, you know, I like what you said about nothing is a big deal you know, obviously with um, more like relationships, family, health, like those things are a big deal, but business-wise, there's really nothing that's a big deal, right? Shutting down a business can feel like a big deal, but that also, it's like a temporary thing until the next one comes along, right? So yeah, that's interesting. I like that. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. 
are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. Tell us about the story in building Bubble. How'd you come up with the idea? So I got introduced to one of the former CEOs in the beauty industry, like one of the one of the giants. And I, we started talking about potentially building a company together, working together at certain capacity and doing something. Um, and that was the first time that I truly realized that you don't need to be a chemist or a dermatologist to start a skincare or a beauty brand. Because I was very sure that you need to have like certain expertise within that category when you build them. But that was the moment that it was like, I was talking to him and his team. And I was like, are you guys chemists? Like, no, but there's third-party manufacturers. Like you don't need to have a factory to be able to create a brand. And my passion was always in creating brands that can emotionally connect to consumers. That is something that I love. And I feel like there's something so different in the connection of a brand and a customer when it's an emotional connection, rather if it's a need-based connection. I love the want part. And this was something that I was fascinated about and always wanted to create a brand that is truly, truly, truly connecting to consumers. Um, and also a brand that does good because as much as I loved like learning so much in bingo and bulletproof plates, like it's just felt to me like I'm not really doing any, anything good in the world. And I'm like truly selling my soul to a certain extent. So I really wanted to create something that would do good in the world. And that's when I've learned, okay, I really want to create something in beauty. I really want to create something unique. I really want to create something that is going to be different. Um, so I just started spending a lot of time researching. And when I say a lot of time, I mean like weeks and months of just sitting and like reading and looking and everything that is happening in the industry and everything that is, and like what's relevant and what's not relevant and what's interesting and what's new. I, I felt like there's a really big gap in skincare and specifically in skincare to young consumers. When you look at like prestige skincare and specialty stores, there are so many options, so many options for every consumer over the age of 25, so many options for every consumer with every possible issue with their skin or every possible desire with their skin. Um, but then when you look at younger consumers, when you look at acne, when you look at mass retail, not necessarily specialty, like we have to remember the specialty isn't necessarily available nationwide. Like some people needs to drive for an hour and a half to actually get to an Ulta or Sephora. So there is really nothing available that is first and foremost, I hate to say this word, but I haven't found a better word for it, clean. Second of all, I hate to say this word because it's not regulated world, words. So it's, it's just like, seems to me like, it's a, but when I say clean, I mean, non-controversial ingredients, no formaldehyde releasers, nothing that is, that is toxic or that is, is suspected to be toxic. Nothing that is clean, nothing that is, that is affordable and nothing that is exciting and above all clinical that is actually going to create the efficacy. And when you look at brands that are out there, you know, like, I think they're all great brands, but like Cetaphil just announced that they're re reformulating their products after 75 years. I think that's the perfect example for where the industry is. Huh. Like 75, 75 years. years. Holy shit. <laughs> nothing has evolved in science in 75 years. Truly nothing. Or there's been plenty, right? And what does that mean? Missing out on a lot of technology here, huh? Exactly. So 
it's just, it felt like there's not true innovation. There's no true innovation from a clinical perspective, no true innovation from a brand perspective, no true innovation in terms of an actual emotional connection to consumers. Like I've never heard a, a customer saying, oh my God, I just got Cetaphil or Neutrogena or CeraVe for my birthday. And was like, I can't believe I just got this. I'm so excited. You know, that emotional connection is just not really there. So really wanted to create something, but knew I don't have enough information or knowledge to create it. So started conducting focus groups, conducted focus groups with 200 teens, um, 200 young consumers to really understand what they're looking for, what they're currently using, what is exciting to them, what are the things that they, they're looking for in a skincare routine. Then COVID hit and we were already creating the brand and already testing formulations and letting our community of 200 teens to test it. But then when COVID happened, we were like, okay, we have to find a way to create a community. And we also want to be able to support um, our consumers, our future consumers, because it was a year before we launched. We also want to find a way to support our consumers or eight months before we launch throughout this process. So we launched a community on an app called Geneva, um, which grew to be a community of 4,500, 4,600 teens, which we really involved them in every possible piece of the brand from thinking of naming and packaging and branding and experience. And 80 of them tested our products before launch and really were part of every possible conversation. How do we launch the brand? How does the website look like? Who do we launch it with? Which influencers? Everything. And it was an amazing, amazing, amazing process because we've learned so much about our consumers and we've learned so much about what they're looking for. And we really created the brand to be right for them. So that has been like overall, this whole process took more than two years before we launched um, of truly like creating the brand and formulating. We have a dermatologist in the team. The entire formulation process took forever because efficacy is the most important thing to us, um, for us. And we really, really wanted to create something very special from an efficacy and product standpoint. How long did the formulation process take? About two years. Two years. Yeah, that's a while, right? And with this, you said there was 4,000 teens that were on the app that you launched on Geneva? Yeah. And what is Geneva? Geneva is, a, is an app for communities. Is that kind of like a Mighty Networks thing? It's like a off-the-shelf type of platform you can use to build a community. I, I, I don't know. It's something similar to that, I guess. Um, it's like an app called Geneva that is really great that you can chat with and you can essentially create communities with your friends, with your family, with anyone you would want. So we created what was the biggest community on Geneva. <laughs> With 4,000 teens. How did you attract these teens? And I'm wondering, like, I think some of the biggest questions maybe someone listening might have is how did you attract them a into this app and B to give you this, what free feedback to build out a business? Do they have equity? Like, you know, what's the incentive perhaps if you even need one to build this community and build this product? So when we did the focus groups, the incentive was we told every teen, like, we'll give you $150 to spend in Sephora if you go, if you, if you bring 10 of your friends and you sit in a room with us and you test products. And then we sat in a room with all of them. We brought 50 different products from Sephora and from Ulta. And we brought also tons of smoothies and cookies and tons of great food for them. And we just had fun for two hours, like literally just talked for two hours about beauty, about skincare, about what they're using, asking them which packaging they like, everything. When we started becoming obviously remote and online, we created the community and we did an Instagram campaign, which the Instagram campaign was like, do you want to have a free sample set when, when a skin, like, do you want to be a part of a skincare brand launch and also get a free sample set when we launched? And a lot of people just joined 
And it was really amazing because we, you know, we had this, they all got free sample set when we launched. They, we also made this community very special because we brought, we worked with, when we launched, we still work, but like we work with a lot of celebrities. So we brought them to talk to the community and have like an hour conversation. And we gave them access to our dermatologists and we gave them access to our product developer. And they could ask any kind of possible questions about skincare and about skin and about skin conditions. And they also just had a home to like chat and they made a lot of friendships. They got to know a lot of people from other, other states. And really like this community was active in an in insane levels. Like I found myself spending 10 hours a day on the app every day. Just what reading through comments or something? And talking to them. And like, it was insane, insane. We got probably about 300 notifications a day from the app. Oh my gosh. Do you guys still have like an app going right now? So now we did it slightly different. So after launching, we really wanted to ensure that we create a community that is made for people that are bubble ambassadors. So now we have 1800 people in the community and they are all bubble ambassadors and they're all users of the brand and we grow the community and everything. Um, and they have their own codes to promote and we still do all the research through them, but it's a smaller community. I see. So, okay. So you shifted. So what happened to the other group? Um, so the other group, we just decided to set sail. You're like, thanks guys. Again, when you put 4,000 teens in the room, it eventually starts feeling like high school, which also with the challenges of high school. So we experienced some of that in a pretty expensive way. I'm like, wait, didn't you skip high school? That's what I'm wondering right now. I'm like, wait a minute. How do you know what high school is like? Were you in college? I had one year of high school out of three. I had one. Um, so, so we, um, it became like very, it's, it, it became very toxic at times and it's just, again, it felt like high school in like a bad way. So we were like, we just can't continue this. Unfortunately, we just have to stop. So we closed it and we relaunched it as like our ambassadors. Nice. And so these ambassadors, I assume have like social media followings or what's the requirement to be an ambassador? Love the brand. That's about it. Really? You could have like 500 followers. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We see this as like word of mouth marketing is the most powerful and the most important marketing tactic in 2022. And word of mouth marketing doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have a lot of followers. Like I think parents is a great example. Parents are the most influential, like they influence each other in massive ways. I probably make every possible purchase decision about my daughter through other parents, just because they tell me, oh, I got this and this is amazing. I got this and this is great. The mom's groups are crazy, aren't they? Exactly. Not that I'm a part of any mom groups, to be completely honest, but I have a lot of mom friends that's, you know, I'm a new mom. So I'm definitely part of a group because I feel like you have to be, if you don't really have a lot of mom friends, then you got to get in somehow. Cause yeah, you just don't know what to do, but you're right. These moms just in general, like any kind of talk. And it's like, what did you do for this? Or what did you buy for that? And you're like buying it the next second. Exactly. The next second, literally the next second. So we, you know, so that's like moms is a great example for really influential people. And also like teens with their friends, you know, like they talk all the time. They influence each other in massive ways. They really, really, you know, especially when it comes to acne, they're like, oh, this worked for me. This hasn't worked for me. They talk all the time. So for us, it's not really a matter of needing to have certain following actually our most our strongest ambassadors are people with no followers at all like it's not even about their following and they're the most important thing to us is that they love the brand and they truly want to be a part of it for the right reasons and that their parents if they're under 18 that their parents are approving it (laughs) 
right? Yeah. They're like, what's this brand you're promoting? Um, so talk about retail. You guys are in over 3,800 Walmart stores launching in Canada soon. This is insane. Why Walmart and how did that happen? So when we launched the brand, um, I knew nothing about retail. I was obviously coming with my performance marketing mindset, immediately thinking we're going to be super, this is going to be a D2C. I knew we want to be in retail because all of our competitors, Neutrogena, Cetaphil, Clean and Clear, Survey, they're all in retail, but didn't really know how to approach this. And then we launched. And in the first two weeks of launch, we get emails from every possible retailer in the country. How'd that happen? What do you mean? How'd they even find out about you? I still, until this day, have no idea, but we had a pretty significant launch. We got a lot of press. We got a lot of, uh, we got a lot of Instagram followers. We got a lot of, uh, awareness. We got to brand awareness of over 30% within the first three months from launch. So because of that really significant awareness, we just had, like, they all just reached out to us in the first couple of weeks, which was an amazing, amazing, amazing situation and shocking situation because we were like, we don't even know what retail is. Now we are here. We are two weeks after launch talking to six of the largest retailers in the, in the country. And we've had conversations and we try to understand a little bit of like, who's going to be the best partner for us? Who's going to truly believe in what we're doing and going to help us create what we want to create. And Walmart was the perfect fit because they, first of all, they, they are the most accessible big box retailer in the country. And every consumer, like 41% of consumers that we talked to and we did, we conducted a lot of research actually go to Walmart at least twice a month. So we knew that our consumer is there. We knew that they really, really want to be, to, to be like, they, they buy a lot of their products in Walmart and Walmart was an amazing partner. So we felt like we could really cre- create the brand in the stores in a beautiful way. We talked to them. We spent a couple of weeks talking to them. Then in February, we signed the deal. And then between February to June, when we had to ship 3000 end caps, it was literally a massive roller coaster in the climate of like supply chain and how to how to actually get products delivered to stores. So it was crazy four months to actually produce all that all that inventory. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's like zero to sixty, huh? Actually, zero to three thousand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you have to buy the inventory up front, anyways? Like, I mean, aren't there minimums for manufacturing? So did you kind of have a lot of stock, anyways? Not for 3,000 stores, <laughs> 3,800. But like we launched initially with end caps in 3,000 stores, and then we launched in the actual mod in 3,800. With two weeks after launching and getting these inquiries from retailers, what do you, what advice do you have around a go-to-market strategy? Like, do you, what PR firm did you use? Did you have a branding firm that you loved that helped create this amazing branding you guys have? Like, did you use a social media company? Like, what are some things that you have in terms of advising, you know, a startup that's trying to build a brand and get noticed when they launch? So we actually did everything internally. No agencies, not at all. It's all in-house. So just production for actual shoots, but I think you don't have any other way to do it, but getting a production agency to, to, do, to do the shoots. Social media, PR, creative, design, everything was in-house. I am super lucky to be working with truly the best people in the industry that were crazy enough to join on this ride. I don't even know why, but you can ask them. But it, it's like we have one of the most amazing creative director and one of the most amazing head of supply chain and amazing PR manager. So truly, truly an amazing team. I think the key thing for us 
And I think what is like the guiding principle in everything we do is research. And we don't make a single decision in the company until this day without at least consulting a couple hundreds of consumers. Like this is for us, like even when we think of a retail strategy, we ask our consumers first, okay, where do you want to see us? And this is something, you know, I think a lot of people in the startup, and I used to be like that as well, like approach an idea because they have a certain issue or they think that there's a certain need and they kind of forget the fact that actually not necessarily all people in the world have the same problem. The fact that we conducted so much research truly allowed us to understand exactly what our consumers are looking for and exactly how do they want us to approach this and also keep up, right? Like our consumers are so fast paced. The only way for us to keep up was to continuously talk to them and learn from them and listen to them. And also to come, to come into this, like with fresh eyes, because, you know, when I, I came into the first focus group, I had very clear thoughts of what teens are going to want. I knew that they're going to care about how their skin is going to look like when they're older, that they're going to want something that is going to help them with their skin and that it's all going to be around that. And then when I spoke to them, I was like, they couldn't care less of how their skin would look like when they're older. They're like, I'm going to be young forever. That's what I used to think. (laughs) Like a a 20 something year old millennial thinking of like, Oh, this is, this is what people care about. I'm not going to age. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am no teenager by any means. Sometimes I act like one, but I love the branding. I love the products. You know, of course I was checking it out. I did the morning routine this morning and I love in the box that you guys put this daily routine thing. You know, you have this really cool pamphlet, hello, future of teen face care. And then your daily routine and AM, it tells me exactly what I need to do. And I feel like there's a really big misconception somewhere that like, as if people know what to do and how to do it. I don't know. I mean, I have lots of skincare products. I don't know when the toner goes on or with what, you know, like the whole thing you've got the cleanser, and then you do the toning and then the moisture and then the protect. See, I probably would have done that a little backwards, you know? So I love that you have this kind of breakdown of, okay, your daily routine, here's the AM, here's the PM, and here are the four products you need for each of those and the order in which you have to put it on. So you make it so easy. I don't know why this isn't done already. I mean, it's just a pamphlet with, with, you know, it's not that hard. It's just a piece of paper with like what to do. That's exactly the reason why we created it. So when we created the community, we had two rooms, right? We had a product developer room and we had a dermatologist room. And our consumers asked questions constantly. What should be my routine? What should be that? What should be that? So when we created the website and the shopping experience, we knew exactly what they don't know. And then we knew exactly how do we want to simplify this? Because like a big thing, a part of that is a part of the brand is like, how do we simplify skincare? And how do we, we want you to be able to create all your routine with bubble eventually, but we want to simplify it for you. So it's not going to be like, oh, I need to use this lactic acid and I need to use this kojic acid and I need to use this niacinamide and how do I use this? And when that, no, you have this routine, this is the products, this is what you need to do. If you have this problem of your skin, this is what you should use. This is if you have that, that problem, that's what you should use and really make it extremely simple because most people are not beauty enthusiasts and know exactly everything that there is to know about beauty and about ingredients. So how do we make it extremely, extremely simplified? Yeah, no, it's true. I feel like there's this expectation that you're supposed to do your own research and figure it out and learn on your own. And no, I mean, I'm not reading beauty blogs. I don't have time, you know, and I've been wearing skincare for a long time and I still don't really know. <laughs> exactly. But you're, I have to say, I'm really obsessed with this. I I love great branding. Like I try to have, 
you know, I think if anybody's noticing out there that the brands I have on the show have insane branding, like I'm always looking for brands that have beautiful packaging, beautiful products, but also like, I mean, I love, I don't even know where to start. The color palette is awesome. I love the, the bubble is very like bubbly, but it's hard. Like the logo on this is really cute. Um, I don't really know what to say. I'm a little, you know, and the packaging is unique for all the different items you have here, like this balancing toner. I've never seen this before in terms of like how this even, you know, this container I've never seen before. So it's cool. I feel like there's so much innovation from just like the ingredients and the product, but also the packaging. Super cool. How the hell did you pull this off? I don't know. Thank you. I'm so excited to hear that. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm excited to also share that we're actually going to bring tons of product innovation to 2022. So we're super excited about that. Can you give us any spoilers? Maybe just one. <laughs> um, we're getting very OTC. OTC is over the counter. Yes. So we're creating a lot of products that are like focused on acne and we are listening to our consumers constantly. So every possible problem that they told us that they have, we're working on fixing basically. Nice. Well, I try, I love the moisturizer specifically. It was like super soft and silky. It is very silky. It said that in the, somewhere I read, where does it say that? I don't know. Like I love every possible product from the line. I think they're all amazing because obviously we put our heart, soul, blood and tears into each and every one of them. Like we took us forever to formulate these at the same time. I would also say the moisturizer is my current favorite, but one of our new products is also like mind blowing. So I'm, I'm very, very excited, which is gonna, it's not going to be released in the next three months, but it's like, such an exciting product. And I think is a true change, truly change maker in the industry. Yeah. Oh, this is where it says it. It says, hello, silky smooth. When you open the box and I was like, yeah, sure. That's what they all say, you know, (laughs) but no, it's actually really silky smooth. So great job. I love it. I really, you know, it's really cool what you guys are doing. You know, what, what are some, I don't know, limiting beliefs that you've had on this journey that you've had to break through? What are some other challenges that you've faced along the way in, in, you know, building this product and and company? So we face challenges every day, all like, this is a part of our lives, right? Like this is being an entrepreneur. This is something that is like morning and evening. You have challenges. It can be from supply chain challenges to, you know, to, product challenges to supplier challenges, like it's never ending. Um, I would say supply chain has been horrific in the last couple of months, as everybody knows. So I found myself feeling like I'm becoming, it's weird to say this on the show, but like becoming a, a, a drug dealer to a certain extent, because I had to do a lot of calls of like, oh, I need 500 kilograms of that Portland flour. And I need 200 kilos of that willow bark extract because we wouldn't have ever been able to pull our Walmart launch off without this. So this was like a really, really crazy experience of like trying to source raw ingredients in a very, very, very challenging environment. And also doing this all, you know, and we are launching this brand in a very, very exciting way, but there's constant need to innovate. So it's, 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 there's so many things and keeping up with the market, I would say is like something that we are constantly focused on like how can we continuously listen to our consumers and keep up with the market yeah definitely what are some hard lessons that you've learned have you gotten some feedback that was uncomfortable or just a lesson you learned the hard way when you take risks always calculate it's like a chess game 
always calculate like what is going to happen when X will happen, if Y will happen, if Z will happen, and constantly think of the different evolve- uh, evolutions that could happen as a result of that risk. And also be extremely, extremely mindful of, of everything that it could impact. And, you know, I think sometimes we all taste risks, like that's a part of being an entre- entrepreneur, but how do we take a risk by truly understanding how it could impact us? Because I've had situations that, and unfortunately I, I miscalculated it. And then as a result, it was, it ended up being extremely challenging. Yeah. And what about fundraising? I know you guys raised some capital. I actually know Willow Growth. They're amazing. So talk to me about the challenges that you faced in um, fundraising. So I think fundraising was because we came with such a significant market research. Fundraising wasn't as challenging as previous experiences that I've had were. It was something that, you know, was a part of the process, but we were extremely, extremely focused on how do we build a brand without a lot of fundraising and how do we build this to focus and focus on profitability and, prof- and, and focus on building a really, really healthy business. And that was something that was really, was a key thing in, in, in our strategy. So everything we've done was like being extremely lean and truly focused on the right stage and like doing the things that are right for the business which also had additional challenges from cash flow management to actual, you know, like focused on like building a really, really healthy business rather than focused on just growth. What's the final advice you have for entrepreneurs tuning in, thinking about taking a leap and building a business? Research, research, research. That's, I would say the most important thing in everything we've done is just constantly research and listen to our community not think we know it all, not think we are always right, but to truly listen to what consumers are saying and build our strategy based on consumers. Because when we came in with true research and evidence backing it, it truly allowed our strategy to be very cohesive and holistic and so much more than just, you know, whatever we thought was right to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've got seven products you're going to be launching, I think, this year, which is crazy. And then you mentioned pop-up locations. Where can we find you? So we are obviously available in nearly 4,000 Walmart stores. We are going to be launching in Showfields in New York in March. And we are looking for a lot more ways to innovate this year. So it's going to be exciting. Awesome. Well, Shai, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.